Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, how stable is the West? You'll often get the spread of very successful societies that then implode. They, so they sort of crumble internally. The future will look very different than the one we have now. Professor Joseph Henrich runs Harvard's Department of Human Evolutionary Biology, where they study how cultures evolve and we evolve with them. His latest book, called The Weirdest People in the World, looks at Western culture, which he defines as distinct from others in certain psychologically peculiar ways kind of trust in strangers, the mobility of labor. It's this tolerance and openness to others and, and bringing in people with many diverse ideas that has been the, one of the primary drivers of, of economic expansion in the last 200 years. The author argues that the Western mind has profoundly shaped the modern world and led to economic dominance. But does history tell us all cultures have their sell-by date? And where does that leave the West? Joseph Henrich, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hi, and great to be with you. Your new book is called, tantalisingly, The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. A lot of alliteration there. In what way, though, are people in the West psychologically peculiar in the way that you view them today? Yeah, well, there's a lot of global variation, and it just so happens that the countries we typically think of as Western are at the extreme ends of, of distributions that vary in, in all kinds of interesting ways. But some of those ways are uh, Westerners are more individualistic. So they're more focused on themselves. They're overconfident in domains they care about. They tend to experience guilt over shame. They're more inclined to trust strangers, less inclined to sacrifice for their families. They're more inclined to analytic thinking. So when they try to solve problems, they tend to uh, break them down into uh, smaller subunits like particles and then assign them properties, uh, whether that's charge or personalities to explain the behavior. Uh, less inclined towards holistic thinking, which we see a great deal of diversity around the world, uh, a greater tendency to look at relationships and attend to backgrounds. Westerners also tend more to intentionality in people's mental states when making moral judgments about others. And when we talk about the West in this context, just give me a geographical sweep, because I'm sure there's going to be a bit of whataboutery from me and probably from our audience about what's counted in, what's counted out and what figures. But broadly speaking, what is the West for you? Well, the term weird, which stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich and democratic, was uh, originally developed as a consciousness raising device to remind people of the fact that psychologists and behavioral economists and people who study psychology have a subject pool dominated by what was often American undergraduates. Now it's people who take online experiments, uh, mostly Europeans from places like Britain, France, Switzerland, the Netherlands, places like that, as well as Australia, Canada. And so 
also uh, one of the things the book brings out is it allows us to put away kind of vague notions about the West and actually think about the historical processes that lead to psychological variation across populations. So one of the things I focus on, for example, is explaining the variation within European countries or within Europe more broadly. And when and how did Western populations of today become psychologically distinct? Do we see major leaps or is just one thing simply morph into another until we end up being, as you would put it, weird? Yeah, so uh, the process I lay out in the book is very much a gradual process. I think it takes about 1,500 years. And the key thing is to look at how the reorganization of European families came about. So historians have long since documented that by around 1,500, at the beginning of early modern European history, many European populations, but not in all, there's interesting variation within Europe, have monogamous nuclear families that live neolocally, so that uh, when couples get married, they live independent of their parents. And this is considered a, a, an unusual structure in global, global perspective. And I trace that back to a series of taboos and other family policies first implemented by the Western Church in late antiquity, and then gradually disseminated throughout many European societies under the Roman Catholic, what becomes the Roman Catholic Church. The marriage and family program is being implemented in the fourth, very beginning of the fourth century, fifth century, and then really gets going in the sixth century. And it's an interesting observation along the way. I think you say, if we look at about that time of around a thousand CE or AD in the old currency, I think it used to be called, uh, they would never have guessed, you said, that European populations would dominate the globe during the second half of the millennium. They would have bet on China or the Islamic world. How absolutely fascinating. Why would that be? Well, if you look at the world around 1000 CE, and there's some great scholarly work on uh, Islamic scholars at the time. And when they looked at the world, they saw uh, barbarians, the white barbarians in the north and the black barbarians in the south. And they saw Egyptians and the Romans, which was the Byzantine Empire for them as the kind of more civilized populations. And they put China somewhere in the middle and they, they were impressed by the Turks, but uh, they definitely saw Europe as a backwater at the time. So, and I think similar, similar views would have been held in China. In fact, China at that point was probably more technologically advanced and certainly larger than anything in Europe at the time. So you can make a similar case for India. I mean, even before the year 1000, India was actually pretty complex and, and, and diverse at the time. So you probably would have ranked in India ahead of Europe as well. So would I be right to say that if you look at the first half of the millennium, people all over the world are broadly speaking the same or think and reason in the same way? I mean, this is probably a bit, a, a bit crude. And then the, the, we get to a, a big leap. Or do you believe that there was a lot more variation yeah, I'd want to complicate that picture a lot. It's not that I think everyone, uh, I don't think the evidence supports that everyone would have been the same prior to 1000. Uh, there's lots of different processes going on. So in the book, I, I lean a lot on Jared Diamond's book, Gun Germs and Steel, which suggests that there were biogeographic variations, which led to different kinds of social developmental processes in different places. So he tries to explain why the Americas were different from Eurasia and why Australia, New Guinea, and Oceania were different. 
So just the sort of size of the continent and the, the uh, competition among societies led to different kinds of cultural evolutionary processes, and this would have affected the shape of the family. So, for example, hunter-gatherers have these extensive kinship networks, but that span and range over great distances. When people begin to develop agriculture, they begin to develop these intensive kinship networks where they're linking together lots of different relatives. But how much that happens seems to depend a lot on ecological variation, and economics, and of course the details of the social norms that people acquire. So one of the things I do in the book is I look just at the psychological variation within China now, or just at the psychological variation within India. And you can see interesting patterns of variation there that seem to be explainable based on the ecology and how the ecology shapes the family structure. So specifically, paddy rice agriculture seems to have a big effect on how family life and, and social institutions are organised. And around 1500 or so runs the argument that the West starts to become markedly dominant. What would account for that? Beginning really in the high Middle Ages, you get a proliferation of new institutions that can spread because of the way the family structure has been changed, so altering the social world and also how people think. And in the high Middle Ages, you get the emergence of voluntary associations, so the spread of guilds, which in many ways act to sort of serve some of the same functions that the family would have served. So to provide a social safety net, to provide help when people are injured, to provide for uh, safety, common defense, security. Uh, and you get the spread of charter towns. So people begin opting into European towns. They become members and citizens. They get rights and responsibilities. They even get some protection from impressment by the local dukes and princes that dominate the area at the time. And this leads to a more individual-centered law, uh, the spread of representative forms of government that you don't see elsewhere in the world. And so it's this institutional change that uh, cumulatively over many centuries eventually leads to a different way of doing economics, greater market integration, and different ways of organizing society. But if you look at the emergence of a figure like Martin Luther, that seems to be very clearly, I mean, there's an example perhaps of how we can also look at the role that individuals have played here. It's such a leap forward, isn't it, in terms of personal responsibility, where you fit with your religion, where you fit with your God. I mean, he's constantly sort of addressing God as if he's on sort of very familiar terms with, with him. This seems to me to be a massive advance for individualism. Famously, the German sociologist Max Weber argued that Protestant had, had a big effect on the rise of capitalist economics and the, the, the economics of Europe in, say, the 19th century and, and beyond. And I think that's right, except you first have to explain how you can have a world where such an individualizing faith could spread. So Protestantism is built around the idea that individuals can read the Bible for themselves and make their own judgments, and then build a, a personal relationship with God, which just seems kind of uh, absurd to, from the point of view of many societies and places and times where you rely on old sages and experts and stuff to tell you religious truths, and the idea that each individual needs to interrogate them for themselves and then build a personal relationship with some supernatural agent is, is, um, needs, to, needs to be explained why that would became catchy by the 16th century. The interesting thing about Martin Luther, he may not be singular in the sense that there were a number of movements that preceded Martin Luther, which had much of the same flavor, and they often got stomped out prior, or in one case, they get embedded into the Catholic Church. So I'm thinking of the, brother, uh, the Brotherhood of the Common Life, uh, which became part of the Catholic Church in the Netherlands. Much of the same doctrine, same feel to it, and it just didn't, it didn't have the explosion that Martin Luther's movement had. What do we mean by the West 
now. And I, I'm just interested in this as I, I followed your thinking, but I also sort of checked it off a bit against my own and what people would say when they meant by the West or what we would talk about when we mean the West and Western system of values when we write in The Economist. So if I look back to the British Empire, for instance, you'd hear Rudyard Kipling, the East is East, West is West sort of idea. That's a contrast of Asia and the West. I came to journalistic fruition covering the end of the Cold War. For me, the West was the thing that wasn't to do with the Soviet Union, mainly, uh, obviously, China and, and Asia playing a big role there. But the West meant something that was inhabited very differently. And now, I have to say, I'm not so sure in an era where I retrace my steps and find the Berlin Wall gone and completely different challenges in the world, I'm no longer as sure as I was about what the West is. Am I alone? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea that I try to develop in the book is is a cultural evolutionary point of view where things are constantly changing and institutions are shaping how we think about the world, how we approach the world, the kinds of emotions we feel, our motivations. So in the sense that uh, institutions have changed, the circle has expanded, there's no simple thing you can point to that would be the continuous West through, through time. I mean, there is this growing importance of impersonal principles which I think can be traced back at least into the high Middle Ages. But, I mean, it's certainly not defined by geography anymore because so many Western institutions and Western ideas have spread around the world at this point. But does the West also define who we are as in opposition to, to something else? Is that something that you would address? Or is that a bit of a dividing line? Because it's a, quite a fashionable thought at the moment, isn't it? This has a bit of a moment in ideology about othering and treating people as other if they're not part of a Western tradition. It's something the, the philosopher Kwame Anthony Appiah raised in his wreath lecture on the BBC, that it's a way of distinguishing between the North Atlantic and the poorer South. So do, do you buy that? It's certainly the way people have used it. I think that in some ways, the argument that I make in the book undermines any kind of simple notion of that, because I'm trying to explain in part the Industrial Revolution, the massive economic expansion that occurred in the West after about 1750. So, you know, thinking about the Industrial Revolution in England and then this kind of global sweep that occurs over the next few hundred years. And one of the things that powers that is a kind of trust in strangers, the mobility of labor, the power of immigrants to drive innovation. So uh, in one of my chapters on you know, what drove innovation, I look at how Europe gradually bound together. And for example, in shops, journeymen would move to very different shops and they would take with them their ideas from one shop where they apprenticed and go to a new shop. And this creates fertile opportunities for new recombinations. And that's what really drives innovation. And if you look at data from the United States, it's clear that immigration has powerfully driven the U.S. innovation. So it's this tolerance and openness to others and, and bringing in people with many diverse ideas that has been the, one of the primary drivers of, of economic expansion in the last 200 years. Rules around marriage or pair bonding before there was, was marriage in the sense that we know it now are very central to your theory of how Western culture developed, perhaps more so than I would have thought when I, I first uh, got hold of the book. Can you explain for us the unusual nature of Western marriage compared to the West of the world? Because I think we probably tend to make more assumptions that there are commonalities around that partner behaviour than you think that there are. Yeah, and actually that relates to the point you were just making. So one of the things that happened in Europe in the early Middle Ages is there was this increasing number of taboos imposed by the Catholic Church that prevented people from marrying their cousins and close relatives 
and affines uh, and from marrying polygynously. So individuals were forced to seek mates socially distanced from them. And I suggest in the book that this may have been actually what dissolves the European tribe. So like lots of places in the world, Europe was filled with all kinds of different tribes or the Celts and the Franks and the Anglo-Saxons, but they kind of vanished from history. And we know from anthropology, the, the way to dissolve a tribe, if, if one wanted to do that, would be uh, to have intermarriage between different tribes. And then the ethnic identities just blend away. And, and at the same time, people are gaining a Christian identity or a Catholic identity. So the marriage rules may have actually uh, increased the interconnectedness among more diverse populations. And the contrast here with the rest of the world, we know from the anthropological record, is that there are often lots of rules about marriages. So marriages are frequently arranged. Across human history and societies, polygyny, a man with multiple wives, is quite common. So 85% of human societies allowed men to take additional wives. And cousin marriage is common. And all of these things uh, have helped groups, large kin groups, Groups to extend their power, become economically stronger, and, and uh, give them some political strength. But the church kind of took all that away. So part of the development of these new kinds of institutions in the high Middle Ages comes from the fact that this usual use of kinship and nepotism uh, and marriage systems, marriage alliances, to build political power and economic power uh, was, was weakened or mitigated by the church's policies. And so are you saying Western culture you have more limited family responsibilities, because it seems almost what you describe is as the society becomes more weird in, in the way that you're using it, you get a lot less leverage inside your family. If you were to compare the sort of role that the family plays in making marriage decisions or and affecting people's decisions around the world, the experiences of contemporary Westerners are pretty mild in terms of the role of the family. You can live independent from your household, you can decide who you want to marry, uh, to, you know, and this is one of the things the church is imposes, is the idea that marriage should be a choice. And it, it works against arranged marriages. In the, in the marriage ceremony, many people will be familiar with, uh, the, the bride gets to say, I do. And this is something that the church introduces because they want to make sure that the bride is on board and not being forced into something. Marriage practice is still a contentious issue in many ways in, in, in different societies. So I wondered if when you raise a historical perspective, as you do, the, the, talking about the move away from cousin marriage, for instance, you risk not acknowledging the presence in certain communities, including inside the West, of groups in which that idea is still very alive and very practised. And how do you fit that into your broader, your broader narrative here? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the ways we can find out how kinship practices impact how people think, because we can look at, uh, say, migrants within Europe, uh, or you could, you could do it in the U.S. as well. And you can look at second-generation migrants. So these are folks who have been raised entirely in somewhere like the U.K. or in France, and you can compare them to second-generation migrants who come from somewhere else. And, then you, and, and often second-generation migrants will retain the t practices of cousin marriage, or other kinds of kin-based practices. And then you can look at uh, measures of conformity, individualism, independence, kind of these psychological measures. And you can still detect the impact of the kinship practices that we could find if we looked across nations in the behavior of second-generation immigrants, which have retained some of these cultural practices that they brought with them. So, so indeed, you can, you know, it's a way of kind of testing how these kinship practices shape people's psychology. If religion, and everything that flows 
from it in terms of the understanding of, of marriage and how people sort of live day to day. If that's such an important factor, uh, as you claim here, how do you explain differences in prosperity and development across a country which has one strong prevailing religion? You're probably going to guess the, the example that I'm going to choose for you because I, I think it's it's the European challenge, and that's Italy, which has an economically prosperous north and a poor south to this day. We've really focused on the, the question that you're bringing up, which is to say, in a lot of our analyses, we only compare people who, who report the same religious denomination. So in Italy is a great case because although the, you know, Rome is there, the seat of the Catholic Church, so you might think, you know, and of course it's all Catholic, uh, the North and South have very different histories. And in fact, the South has this kind of patchy history. The northern part of Italy was under the Carolingian Empire. So by 800, it's getting the full force of the marriage and family program, which was actually implemented by secular authorities working together with the church, breaking these complex kinships down into nuclear families. So parts of Europe that were under the Carolingian Empire get a particularly strong dose of this marriage and family program uh, from the church. Meanwhile, southern Italy, some parts of it were under the Orthodox Church for periods, some were independent for periods, some were under Islamic powers for periods. And so if we take the amount of cousin marriage in Italy, say there's, there's 93 provinces in Italy, and we use that, we can explain uh, psychological variation in people's impersonal trust, for example, how much they use checks versus uh, relying on cash, how much money they keep in the bank versus under their mattress, uh, all kinds of things that suggest impersonal trust as well as their willingness to make voluntary blood donations. We find that the cousin marriage rates in Italy in the mid-20th century can explain these contemporary patterns of psychological and, and behavioural variation. Let's talk about the West the way that we most often talk about it today, which is its cultural development, what it's led to in terms of its economic outlook, prosperity, stability, all those good things, some of which feel like they've had their fundaments shaken a bit in in the years since perhaps the end of the Cold War. Does the theory of the way the West developed culturally lead directly to the kind of economic prosperity on which a modern view of the West would be largely based, I would say? Well, there's definitely a fair amount of contingency in there. So some of the things I, I develop in the book is that it's not just that you have to have broken down your families. You have to be able to, you have to adopt and implement these impersonal institutions. So things like representative democracy that develops in the wake of, of these social and psychological changes, individual-centered law and whatnot. I mean, some of these, these comparisons get interesting in Latin America where powerful expropriated institutions were imposed after the arrival of the Spanish. And those expropriative institutions then shape life in their own ways. So the big picture is that uh, it's, it, our psychology adapts in part to the institutions that we're opposed. And if you have really uh, kind of top-down heavy expropriative institutions, that, that can also have effects on how people think and approach the world that have enduring uh, historical impacts. And how do wealthy non-Western countries, I'm thinking specifically of China, which is so fast growing in terms of wealth and its pursuit of economic progress, how do they fit into your narrative? One of the things that, that I emphasize is that, you know, oh, there's this concern that there may be greater uh, cultural homogeneity kind of spreading around the world with the spread of Western institutions. So China, Japan, uh, a lot of these societies adopted Western civil codes. So for example, in the 1950s, China adopts bans on marriage to close relatives, uh, bans on polygyny, bilateral inheritance through both uh, 
moms and dads. Uh, same thing happens in Japan in the 1880s. So they, they get some flavor of this change in, in social structure. But of course, there are already existing institutions in these places, which then kind of recombine with the imported Western institutions to make new recombinations. So I think what we're seeing is a new set of cultural evolutionary experiments. Uh, some of them were successful, some are less successful. Uh, and you know it's just kind of history sorting itself out. So. Uh, what I expect to see is, is more interesting patterns of cultural variation with new institutions shaping how people think. I like the idea of history sorting itself out. It's sort of slightly Hegelian idea. Someone's just going to, to come along and it'll all be sorted. What I mean by the, the, the sorting itself out is that some combinations of novel institutions will lead to that society to be more successful in competition against other societies, more economically prosperous, more, more powerful militarily. And that tends to be what spreads institutions. So the reason why so many European institutions spread is because the, that package of institutions gave Europe a powerful military and powerful economic system, which then led to either to conquest when European powers conquered and colonialized and often sometimes imposed, often imposed uh, their institutions, or it led to other societies simply copying their institutions, so importing them wholesale. Sometimes, you know, the U.S. Constitution has been essentially copied and transplanted in lots of places. As a political journalist, I had just one challenge around the sort of kin-based society reflecting cultural respect for elders, that you raise it in the context of, of China, where that, that's a very sort of well-known thing about uh, China and its understanding both of a kind of theology, but also of the family. And it would suggest that in the West there would be a lack of respect for elders. Some people would say that is the case. But if we look at spending and public spending, and this, I think, tends to be the case across the democracies, it almost seems like the elders do rather better than the youngers. And the big argument at the moment is really about that distribution. Yeah, that's interesting. But it's, it's, I think the way, the way I would see it would be that that is an impersonal institution taking the place of what kin-based institutions have always done across human history, which is that normally your family would take care of the elderly, and the elderly would often maintain an advisory or kind of supervisory role in households. But what European cultural trajectory has done, which is to retire the old folks and uh, take them out of economic power and out of the supervision and decision-making in families uh, and put them by themselves in some sense, which is why you need these impersonal institutions to, to care for them. How do we look at the West now when we often talk about the challenges and in some quarters a kind of fear about what will become of the West and Western values? If things are as distinctive as, as a picture as you seem to paint, it seems hard to think that we can easily come together or come together again to have a more international outlook and to address our problems together. Is that something that, that worries you when you look at the sweep of history? Yeah, I mean, it, it, and it should worry you, right? So you, you'll often get the, the spread of very successful societies that then uh, implode. They, so they sort of crumble internally. And that has to do with a lack of sort of uh, dynamic process at the core. So that when you, when you see the, the emergence of particularly large uh, corporations or large governments that seem uh, unopposed, those are the kinds of things that can take away from, from the dynamics, the competition among voluntary associations. And how stable do you think your notion of the West is, the, the rise of advancements of other cultures and that their claim to have different models but at the same time be reasonably successful economically, dependency on fossil fuels, inequality, all the things that people see as 
raising questions about the Western order. Do you think the future of the West looks different from the one that we've had up to date? Yeah, I mean, I think there's no doubt that uh, the future will look very different than the one we have now. And uh, the most obvious things to look to are the changes in technology. So, I mean, the way, the fact that we have the internet and you can buy things online and you can have contracts that are very strong, you know, stabilized by some kind of technology, blockchain, things like that, means it totally changes the nature of economics, the importance of uh, trust amongst individuals. It's going to change the character of institutions. So all that's going to take us in a completely new direction that, at least based on history, is almost impossible for us to imagine. Joseph Henry, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's good to be with you. Well, whether you live in a Western country or not, Joseph Henry paints a bold picture of Western identity and dominance. But do you think it rings true or are there other exceptions? Especially ideas about family responsibility. Can it be right that the loss to parental power has had such a big effect? Certainly has at my house. We'd love to know what you think. Write to us, radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And for your best introductory offer to all of our coverage, east to west, north to south, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the show notes. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.